Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview style podcast. These interviewed are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved like all of my guests are is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to past, present, and future legends, as well as business owners, employees, media, and land use warriors, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle we call off-road. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active in off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world that we live and love and call off-road. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Have you seen Four Low Magazine yet? Four Low Magazine is a high-quality, well-written, four-wheel drive-focused magazine for the enthusiast market. If you still love the idea of a printed magazine, something to save and read at any time, Four Low is the magazine for you. Four Low cannot be found in stores, but you can have it delivered to your home or place of business. Visit fourlowmagazine.com to order your subscription today. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Travis C. Bunch. We're going to find out about the C. We're also going to find out about periodical book that he's been putting out and uh, him walking away from 20 plus years as a mechanic in 2020 and going full head into the into his book and uh, the periodical book, I have to remind everybody, and that's uh, Flat Fendering Aficionado. And uh, he also runs flatfendering.com and has a bunch of uh, a product there that you can look at uh, or purchase, not look at. Go ahead and buy, man. Keep this guy going. Anyway, Travis, thank you so much for coming on board and uh, spending some time with us and telling some stories. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad to have the chance. So let's, uh, let's start way back in the beginning. Where were you born and raised? Yeah, I was born and raised in the Lake of the Ozarks. And, uh, you know, it's a basically an industrial tourism hotspot if you don't know where that is and what goes on there. But it's a, it's a lot like Moab. It's a little farther ahead in their tourism. But, uh, yeah, it's feast or famine there. And, you know, a lot of times I ended up doing, you know, a lot of mechanic work in different fields there. But uh, it's really similar to where we're at, just little different uh, climate yeah. and different types of different types of people that come and recreate and different things to do, you know, but right. The humidity is a lot different. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. You hardly have to drink water. You know, you soak it up through your, through your skin is osmosis. <laughs> there you go. So what town did you live in, in around the Lake of the Ozarks? Uh, the town, usually it was a couple different ones. Camdenton, Missouri, you know, was warm. And then uh, we have a horse farm out in Montreal, Missouri. Okay. So grew up grew up on a horse farm, which a lot of people would see me today and never think that. But that also gave me the love of getting out on the trail early on and, you know, the adrenaline rush of climbing things that you're not sure if you're going to be able to make or not. You know, it's real similar to four-wheeling, but I got tired of getting thrown off of horses and with a Jeep or whatever, you can turn it off when you're getting over your head where you can't with a horse. Yeah. My dad says that he'll never ride a horse because it doesn't have a key. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So let's talk about those early horse years. Were you, uh, did you have a lot of chores, you know, feeding and muck and stalls, things like that? Oh yeah. 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 It was a daily type of deal around there. Uh, towards my teenage years, I, didn't really do as much of it anymore. I stepped out of my own, did a lot of working a lot. As soon as I got my driver's license, it was all the ranch stuff was over with. I was, you know, couldn't be stopped and was out on the road all the time. Right. I think that happened to a lot of us. Um, you know, I'm a product of, uh, I, I got my driver's license in the early seventies and 
I can't, I remember, man, I was just chomping at the bit. I already had a car. I'd already worked on it, had it running, was doing what I wanted to do, you know, except I couldn't drive it to school. You know, (laughs) I mean, it was just, and and school was not that far for me either. I grew up in a fairly large town of about 50,000 people. Um, but it was, you know, as soon as I got that driver's license, everything else I was doing came to a standstill. Absolutely. Yeah. That was, that's, you know, it was freedom, you know, you get out and you were grown up all of a sudden, you know, in your eyes. And that, that, like I said, that started a whole infatuation with cars across the board, not just four wheel drives, you know, and you know, a good part of that is going over to friends' house and out in their garage, you know, their dads had car craft and hot rod and all those things laid out on the bench and you go through, pour through all that stuff and dream about, you know, what your next move was going to be. Right. So what was the school like for you? Was, was it, uh, was it easy or, you know, what kind of student were you? Uh, I don't know. Some things came easy for sure. A lot of people ask me like, you know, how do you get to where you could, uh, you know, you don't look like you'd be much of a writer or have, you know, any kind of English training or anything like that for writing. And, you know, what it was, was I just kept failing English over and over every year. (laughs) So I was in that class and it finally was like beat into my brain that this is how you talk and write, you know? Yeah. I, I, I got through all my English requirements by being the photography editor on the yearbook staff. Yeah. Perfect. I didn't have to write a damn thing. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, got into Votech, you know, in the, in the auto stuff, auto mechanics training classes and kind of went from there. I thought to myself, you know, I can really save myself a lot of money by not paying all these mechanics to work on their stuff and I can modify my own vehicles. So, So that's kind of where I stepped into mechanics world right there. And that was the only reason was just to, have more for less, you know. Well, and besides being the, you know, working on the ranch and and taking care of horses and stuff, what 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 other kind of uh, as soon as you could, what other employment did you start off with? You know, in that in that area, there's so many restaurants and bars all over the entire lake area. It was really easy to get into, you know, the food service and whatnot. So a lot of times I worked in food service in kitchens, you know, and that was bounce around and do different things all the time, which it's really nice as a poor teenager trying to buy, you know, speed parts and gas. Hey, you can eat free dinner, you know, whenever you get done or have a break at the kitchen, wherever you're working. So that's, that was, that was a big advantage too, of being a teen with a limited budget. Yeah, I can imagine. So. And so from working in the, uh, the restaurants and then you were taking the, um, vocational classes and auto tech classes, um, when did that, when did that change over to where you, uh, you started, you know, after the restaurants, what did you do? Uh, that was moved right into working at, uh, you know, car lots. So being a detail guy and then, uh, doing little tiny light mechanic work running cars back and forth from the car lot to the big dealer auctions and stuff that were, you know, three hours away in St. Louis or Kansas city or Springfield, Missouri. So that was a course right there with what you always want to do as a teenager is drive, you know, Corvettes or Mustangs and stuff back and forth to the auction by, you know, half unsupervised. You're kind of supervised, but then you get to play with all these cars that you don't get to afford or, maybe wouldn't really buy, but like to go for a, you know, daily cruise in them. There you go. I, I had a job where I worked as, when I was 14, I was working as a shop, shop boy, you might say, cleaning up and organizing parts and all that kind of stuff and doing, you know, some stereo installs. This is back in the, in the 70, early 70s when, you know, nobody, no car dealerships, they didn't come with, you know, they came with an AM radio. You know, sure. They, they didn't come with a lot of cars. Didn't come with with air conditioning. So we yep. did fat. We did aftermarket air conditioning and stereo installs and and you know all sorts of that kind of you know stuff for the dealers yep. or for people that had already bought their cars and you know bought them 
stock and then wanted them upgraded. But we also did motorhomes. So at 16, the okay. boss said, okay, you get to, you get to drive now. And, uh, you know, you get to drop off clients and pick them up and, you know, get them back to their car and get them back to work, whatever. But now you got to go drive this motorhome. And it was <laughs> a, the first time it was a class A, I don't know, a Winnebago or something that was like 40 foot long. Sure. And they, uh, they, first of all, they told me, uh, okay, you know, it's in the lot. You're going to, you know, it's this number, here are the keys, take it. And I get out there and I find it finally. And there is like no room to open the door and get in the damn thing. And you know, I was 16. I wasn't, I wasn't real big. You know, I was probably five, nine and, you know, 170 pounds or something like that. But it was like, sure. how in the heck am I getting in there? Figured it out, drove it for the first time in traffic in the San Francisco Bay area. And I was just like, what am I doing? <laughs> I, I've had my oh, license yeah. for like three days <laughs> <laughs> and driving a 40 foot motorhome. Well, you know, it's uh, it's a good training, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, that's a wild ride for a youngster for sure. Absolutely. It had been quite a while until I'd gotten to where I could drive something that big, you know, it, even just an opportunity other than just a one ton truck, you know. I have to say the coolest car that I got to drive back then was a Jensen Interceptor with the 455. Oh yeah, that's good stuff. That Absolutely. was a bad, bad car. <laughs> Especially back, back in those days. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we had some little kick cars and stuff like that at the specialty car lot I worked at. And, and it, was, it was, some of those stuff was, you know, it was dangerous for sure. Right. <laughs> so what was your first car? My first car was a, you know, a typical 90s kid car. It was a, because I, you know, it was, uh, it was a 95 was when I got my driver's license. So I had a 83 Z28, you know, it had a, didn't have T-tops or anything like that. I wore out 350 and an automatic in it, you know, barely turned the tires, but Man, it was the coolest thing I've had, you know, at the time that I could find. So, was it gold? No, it wasn't gold. Actually, it was uh, it was a silver one. Silver, okay. silver with, yeah, with like a charcoal interior in it. But it didn't last that long. I think I had it about six months and flipped it up on its lid, and that was the end of that that Camaro. <laughs> <laughs> that's that is that kind of stuff just doesn't even stop to this day. So, still still playing like that. But so after I think I've had the, uh, after the, had over sixty two cars so far. And wow! Around yeah, around thirty of them have been Jeeps. So a lot of Jeeps, but a lot of different makes and models of stuff. I'm really across the board with what interests me. Right, you're not a you're not brand specific. Absolutely not. No, I'm I'm a realist when it comes to that. And I mean, all this stuff is junk. So <laughs> all you need to do is pick whatever thing you'd like to look at is pretty much it. I can remember going to Moab and meeting Marlon and he uh, from Marlon Crawler. And it yeah. was during the Toyota, whatever they do there in Moab and what did they call it. And we had just bought an 84 Series 60 Toyota. Cool. And it was all bone stock. And and I mean stock to the point where it we killed it like later that year or the or the next year with two with four hundred and twelve thousand miles on it. You know, oh, the, wow. The tie rod ends were held together with um like hose clamps, the alligator type clamps, you know, that and uh you know it it's sitting in the in the driveway right now because my wife Shelly wants to rebuild the motor. So yeah. um, that's the next thing on the list here in the next month or so is I'm gonna pull the hood off of that and she's gonna we're gonna pull the engine and then she's gonna go step by step and you know, get a chance to rebuild a motor. But I remember seeing Marlon and we walk up to the, the vendor show and he goes, Rich, you're a Jeep guy. What are you doing here? And I looked at him and said, Marlon, Marlon, I've never been brand specific. I drive a Toyota now. And he, his eyes got really big and he, and I was expecting him to say, what did hell just freeze over or something? But you know, that's, sure. you know, I've, I've owned, I've owned, I think just about every brand of vehicle, you know, that American made yeah. um, at one time or another. 
So what was the favorite car you ever had that you wish you had back? And that's a, that's a really tough, tough question in a car. And it's actually almost kind of unattainable anymore. I never thought it would be. It was probably the 71 Chevelle that I had in high school. And that was a really, it was kind of a beater, you know, but it had a really hot 355 in it with solid lifters and a single plane intake, big carburetor, three speed converted to the floor that just had the wrong gear ratio. But, you know, it was a, it was a really fun car to drive. And nowadays, I mean, you can't hardly get into one of those anymore for, a, you know, 15 grand for a piece of junk, you know. Blue? No, this one was red. It was wow. red with a, it did have a blue, it had a blue uh, turn signal housing on one side. That's funny you say blue, <laughs> but yeah. Yep. It had a terrible paint job on it, just looked like a sack of potatoes, had slot mags on the back and Kragers on the front, but. And it was it was a something to behold. Nice, nice. Was it uh, was it a chick magnet? That one, uh, uh, yeah, kind of. Not really. I don't know. It was kind of in that that year. You know, everybody liked you know the '90s stuff like Fox Body Mustangs and you know all those kind of Jeeps, Wranglers. You know, everybody they had Jeeps. You know, those were the chick magnets. You could throw the top down and cruise the strip which is like a you know kind of like a coney island kind of spot at the lake of the ozarks so we'd cruise that every night you know and look at everybody and you know do burnouts and try to pop wheelies and our stuff and be hooligans you know right yeah the 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 old junker muscle car that was super fast and loud was kind of scary so now nobody was trying to get in that thing with me (laughs) except for the boys (laughs) That's for sure. And they still talk about that to this day, you know, about back in the day, cruising in the old Chevelle. Between that and the, I had a 89 Florida Highway Patrol Mustang marked car. And that was another one that, that's the tie between the Chevelle. Okay. And uh, did that have the uh, police brakes and the the police tires and the police engine? (laughs) <laughs> exactly <laughs> absolutely yep set up just like the blues mobile absolutely <laughs> that's awesome and uh yeah the thing scooted pretty good then with uh with that interceptor motor right yeah and it was a it was an open highway car so it had the higher gear ratio it had like the 272 or something like that in the back so you could just really run out each gear in it and make it seem like it was a lot faster than it was for sure Donuts, you know, that thing would just, it would lay them down like a tilt-a-whirl at the, at the carnival. It was amazing. <laughs> so, um, I know you're married. When did you meet your wife? Uh, like 2004 or so, something like that. Yeah, we've been married and together, married 18 years together around 20. So, okay. she's a car gal. So, it's funny, we have always way too many cars all the time, but, you know, she gets really sentimental with these things and then demands that I never sell them. So, we and I can't argue with that. So, uh, we just end up having tons of cars all the time. So, she, <laughs> when we first got together, she had a 65 Mustang Fastback, 289 automatic, red, black interior. It was a really neat car. So, I had that, and I had the, had the cop car at that time. So, we were a Mustang couple. Nice. And uh, where did you meet her at? Just, uh, she lived in the same neighborhood as I did, you know, and we'd, of course, see each other driving around in our classic cars. And she worked at a, a, a resale thrift shop, too, that I would go to and go picking for, you know, antiques and vintage clothes and whatnot. So and we was, always had a relationship there, too. Was that in, was that in Missouri? Camdenton, yep. Okay. And uh, from Missouri, where did you guys end up? Uh, what was your next stop? We went straight to Moab. You know, we'd traveled oh, wow. around quite a bit, you know, like to the Caribbean and all around the U.S. And one day we made it out there with a new Wrangler that we ended up with. Not new, but new to us, you know, it was a 99 TJ. And finally we had something reliable enough we could drive across country and go wheeling and come back so that's when we started coming out here and deciding that was where we needed to be but we got two kids and they're both close to the same age and as soon as those guys graduated high school 
at their home schools, we went ahead and took off. So that was our getaway time. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And um, so how how long you've been in Moab now? Been here around five years. Five years. Okay. Yeah. For some reason, I had I thought you had a stop in in Arizona. Now that's that's actually more recent. Yeah, we've uh, been talking. I mean, it's so hard to live in Moab unless you're either independently wealthy or you work five jobs or you have you know one or two very successful jobs. And so right. we've since uh, you know 2020, we've been looking for somewhere that was you know some kind of affordable at all and you know still remote and whatnot. And we settled on. Uh, Northern Arizona near Sholo. So we bought a little acreage down there and eventually maybe we'll be able to retire down here after we get done, get run out of Moab, you know? Nice. Okay. And uh, you're, you're living, uh, Shelly and I have lived the last, well, when I bought the Taj Mahal or the semi truck, which is converted into an RV, Oh, yeah. bought that in 2010 from Rick Dermo down in Dove Creek. And we started living in that in 2011 full-time. Yeah. And, you know, traveling the country, putting on the events. And then, you know, that's why we developed not only We Rock, but then we had, we expanded and did the Dirt Riot races so that we could just stay on the road. And yeah, absolutely. You, and you, you know. Now we're we're not spending as much time in the in the semi truck, but uh, what is uh, what's your you're you're living in a you guys are living in a school bus, correct? Absolutely, yeah. It's a nineteen fifty nine Chevrolet. It's a it's about a thirty footer. I don't remember how many seats would have been in it at that time. That's usually how people you know will describe how big their bus is, right? But. Uh, Ours was converted to an RV back sometime, I can tell, in the 60s. So, I mean, it wasn't really that old, and somebody converted it to a really nice RV. And, uh, yeah, we found it in Moab, you know, dying in the dust. So we scraped all the nastiness out of it and have been turning it into a pretty nice little tiny home now. Excellent. Yeah. I don't, I don't yeah. mind living small. I really got to like it. We've been living small for quite a few years now. And, uh, you know, it's, it's good. It's good. I don't like having all the stuff. I don't need the stuff. Right. That's all, that's all the house is for is to accumulate more stuff. <laughs> Pretty sure George Carlin did a bit about that. Right. You know, and, and it's, everybody always says, you know, oh, the guy who ends up having the most stuff when he dies wins. And, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't quite agree with that. I want stuff that, I just don't want stuff hanging around. I want stuff no. that I can use. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, exactly. So do you have a garage there? Yeah, kind of. Uh, we, so we live on a property as a friend of mine, Mike Nappy is a okay. king of the hammers, king of the hammers racer. And, uh, he's got that RMB four by four shop in LaSalle junction. So, yeah, I help him out when he needs an extra hand around the shop, and especially on like this older stuff that's now starting to come in broken from Moab trail repairs, you know. So, and he lets me use the shop a little bit here, here and there. So, oh, good. Okay. Yeah, and and that gives you a place to to store some of the cars because I I'm sure you have more than just the, uh, you know, what what are you driving now? <laughs> Definitely multiple things. Yeah, we. Live in Moab, technically homeless, and have nine vehicles. Actually, <laughs> ten now. We have ten now. I I got to count the new Golden Eagle too. So there you go. But, <laughs> yeah, right now my my uh, my Wheeling Willies, which was kind of a trade in, uh, it's not really powered and uh, ready to be driving back and forth to Moab on the highway. So I've got a little three hundred dollar beater Ranger. I've been going back and forth to town with on the highway. That's a little more safer. It's a little harder for the semis to run over me in that truck. So right, if I don't do that, it's two hours to get to town on dirt in the Willys. So <laughs> which is fun, but it's not always you know what I need to be doing. So right, not real convenient. 
No, no, it's and not. And from LaSalle it's... Junction, do you, do you cross over the highway then and then 191 and then go down, go out, or, or are you staying on that on that east side? Uh, to get into town on dirt? Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be, we just go right across Highway 46, and then there's oh, a, uh, okay. yeah, there's a road called Browns Hole Road, and it goes all the way to area BFE, you know, and then you pass BFE and come out. You can come out on the highway there, but of course I don't. I go next to the highway and come down what they call Yellow Circle. Right. And that's where a lot of people camp, and that's kind of the staging area for the old Strike Ravine Trail. And then just come in Spanish Valley down there. Yeah, I timed it. It's about two hours, no matter how you slice it. It just can't go any faster than that in anything I own right now. Right. I, I think Navi, Navi can do it a lot faster in his V8 Cherokee with the big shocks, for sure. I can imagine. I can imagine. I can't, <laughs> I can't, I can't hang with that yet. So I uh, I tried taking that road you're talking about. And yeah. it was there was a winter where Shelly and I lived at uh, Danny Grimes' house. Grandpa's garage. And uh, it was like 90 90 days or so we we were in Moab. And we tried to go that back road. And I got to an area where there was just signs all over the place that said, private property, no trespassing. And it looked like they were trying to keep you from going down the main road. And, And I know that it was probably the properties on either side of the road. But yeah. at, at that point, I just turned around and came back. But that's probably the road that ta- that you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely is. Yeah, and I've tried it myself before I really knew what the route was, before I met the guys, you know, before I met Nappy and his friends out there at the junction. You know, they told me exactly how to do it. And they said, yeah, don't worry about those signs. You'll pass through all that and eventually have to open some gates and stuff. It looks really rural, but. Eventually, it turns into the road, yeah. Oh, so there's gates and everything you have to open and close. Oh, yeah. That's the common, common thing out here is just there's free-range cattle gates everywhere. And if you don't really know that unless that actual gate says private property, you know, you can always go through them. You just put them back. But Right. Leave them as you found them. Yeah. Back in Missouri, that's not the case. It's all private property and you'll get shot. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> It took me a while to get over that whole, you know, programmed fear of getting shot and being on private property to, you know, be able to explore this public land out here that we have. But that's the whole reason we moved out here was, you know, we ran out of stuff to do, to run in Missouri. You can only, there's like three parks and that's about it. Right. The rest is private. Here we can just, you know, tool around for hours out in the middle of nowhere. So when you, when you were back in Missouri and you had the, uh, your first couple of cars, how did you get into wheeling? That's a funny, funny situation. So I'm from a, you know, split up family and my mom had bought a cabin down in this little valley and the driveway was just a goat path to get into it. So in Missouri, you know, in the Ozarks, the hills aren't really that tall compared to mountains, but I'll tell you what, they're straight up and down steep and, you know, there was like two times I had a, the old Camaro down in there, second Camaro, and getting it stuck, burning the tires off in the gravel and whatnot, you know. And finally, I'm like, you know, I needed some kind of four-wheel drive. You know, my mom had had a Bronco 2 stick shift. She drove up and down it, no problem. And that wasn't really for me. But, you know, went back to one of the car lots that I used to work at, and there was a bright red, shiny CJ7 Laredo 1986 model with a four-speed Dana 44 rear and had to trade in the old 89 RS Camaro for that but bad boy. And I never looked back on that. I've always had a four-wheel drive as either a primary or second or third vehicle at all times now. Nice. Okay. It was basically so it was like wheeling every day. Yeah, totally out of necessity. And once you had that four-wheel drive freedom, did you did you do a lot more, start a lot exploring then? Yeah, as much as you really can in that area, you know, there was a lot of undeveloped land and like, uh, say, uh, subdivisions that weren't finished or, you know, the whatever, 
went under. And so there was a little bit of wheeling to be done there, but a lot of it was just, you know, mud and mud running and whatnot. If there was any kind of events, that's what it was. So we did get into some mud racing for a while and that's fun for a while. But after so many years of washing out mud and broken seals and nastiness, you know, that's the fun wears off. So now I try to avoid mud at any cost whatsoever. I agree. <laughs> I hate mud. <laughs> yeah. Shout yeah, out I to got... Woody. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yep. I hate mud.com. Still relevant. Absolutely. Yes. Yep. So let's, uh, let's talk about how you got into the, the, the want of stepping away from being, you know, a regular, regular job and going after the book, doing the periodical. And what's the, what's the whole story behind that? And, and talk about the, what the periodical is. Yeah. So, I mean, I've always loved telling stories. That's, and I love listening to stories, loves, you know, people that can tell them. And, um, even from early on, man, in the high school, I'd had, you know, supposed to do a report on such and such. And I ended up, you know, would write a paper about a wheeling trip that we did that weekend because I was just obsessed, uh, you know, about the time JP Magazine became a thing. You know, I had gotten my first Jeep and I was in high school reading those books, those <laughs> magazines all the time and following, of course, Rick and everybody's adventures back then. And uh, I always said, you know, in my back of my head, you know, one day when I retire, when I'm done working, I'm going to write, you know, article for the magazines. I don't care who it is or what it's about. Hopefully it's for JP. But, you know, I mean, this that continued up until we moved to Moab. You know, I had to tell my wife, yeah, it's getting close. You know, we can retire and I can, you know, sit on the beach in Baja and write magazine articles, you know, for JP. and yeah. You know, not 2019 came around and, you know, everybody's getting bought out and, uh, you know, folding. And it's like, wow, now my retirement plan has totally changed. I'm going to have to <laughs> do something here completely different. So, you know, a bunch pivot. of <laughs> You needed to pivot, huh? Yeah. I'm like, this is time to do something now. Of course, COVID hit and I was just kind of not really out of work, but it was slowed way down because the tourists couldn't come to town. So I decided to just do something on my own, you know? Yeah. Because we, Moab, Moab absolutely shut down. They just told everybody, we don't want anybody here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was, there was locals that were fighting campers out of Ken's Lake, you know, fist fights over get out of our town. And it was just madness. <laughs> and so we just kind of hung back in our little house, little, that came with my job, you know, it was part of it. And I was like, you know, we need to get out of this house that is attached to this job that I don't really like anymore. And there's, you know, what happens if, you know, town shuts down again, you know, cause it was all uncertain. We didn't know. Right. So it was time to make the leap, you know? And you did the school bus. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Decided, yeah, time to move to the school bus so we can cut back on rent. You know, every place to rent around here is, you know, a thousand dollars a room. So if you want a three bedroom house, that's, you know, $3,000 a month. So that's why everybody's got two and three jobs. And that just wasn't, that takes, you know, all of our adventure time out and all the fun of why we moved to Moab to begin with. It wasn't to move in here and work 24 hours a day. Well, and that's that's the thing with Moab is that I know everybody always has a I mean it's it's so common to see help wanted signs. And yeah. Everybody I talk to that has a business in Moab says that, you know, people come to work, they as soon as they get their first paycheck, maybe two, then they disappear. Yep. You yep, know, that's and, a fact. And it's it's hard to keep keep gameful employment or keep your business running with that kind of employment because you're you're constantly having to try to teach people to do what you want them to do, and then they disappear because they they're on the river or they're you know cliff they're living you know climbing cliffs or bicycling sure. or something. You know, absolutely. They, they don't want to. They're there to. They're there to party or to yep. adventure, not to. Uh, 
And then the other thing that, that drives me nuts is, is when you see all those people that, that, uh, maybe live on you know, the river rats or the, the cliff, cliff, cliff dwellers. There you go. It's hard to say. Um, when they get down to city market and they peruse and munch, it's like, they're, yep. it's like they're grazing. Yeah, Nobody exactly. actually buys anything. Right. Yeah. We call those freegans. Freegans. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, they're the ones that steal the salt off the tables, you know, and the hot sauce off the table at the restaurant. <laughs> yeah, I saw a guy in there one time, and he he was buying mushrooms, and he broke broke off all the stems and took just the caps. <laughs> well, that's a that's a very Moab thing to hear about for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah. and another time, having a. a you know, some guy, there was like three or four people standing there. You could tell that they were living on the river and they had, uh, you know, by the way, they were dressed and stuff and, and they, sure. they had, they all had something to eat and they were sharing it amongst themselves. And I just stood there and stared at them. And the guy, the guy noticed me staring and he goes, he holds the bag of chips open to me and goes, here, you want some? Like, that's why <laughs> I was staring at him that I wanted some of his chips. And I was like, uh, thanks, but no thanks, man. You know, whatever. And I just walked off. I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't understand it, you know, and, and the employees are just walking right past them. They, they're non-confrontational. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's, that's some of those people just, they don't even care with their job either. You know, they're just kind of there to get their paycheck and it's so many things are, you know, left in shambles in these you know, stores and whatnot, just because people don't care. They're just hanging out to get a check. But, yep. you know, a lot of those people are just kind of nomads and they go back and forth to all these different places like, you know, whatever, Jackson Hole or, you know, down to Joshua Tree and they'll go to different places in the different seasons. So you'll see the same people, but they're never here all the time. Right. I get, I, I, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, winter's pretty tough in Moab. It can get pretty gloomy and pretty cold for a long time, it seems. And uh, it, looking at uh, spots in, in Baja and whatnot, that's a that's still on our <laughs> radar to get out of this funk during the wintertime. It can get pretty rough. I, I did enjoy our winter there, though, because there was mm-hmm. nobody on the trails. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you could you could start off in the morning and go do a trail, and, and you know, by 2 o'clock, you've got a foot of snow that you're trying to get out of to get back, sure. but it was, uh, it was fun. I, I enjoyed it, you know, except there was nobody, there really was nobody to wheel with. No, you're really on your own and you got to really plan ahead and be mindful of what you're going to do. Cause you can get yourself in a really bad situation in the wintertime around here. Right. People always say, you know, there's no mud in Moab. Well, you're not here when the mud is here and you don't go to the places where the mud is. And the mud is no joke out here. That's the, Last time I took my willies out, I got stuck in mud and had to walk six miles, you know. That was, <laughs> I was, I'm, I'm starting a new YouTube channel, and that was my first videos were me going out, you know, on our little adventure doing that and walking home <laughs> at dusk, you know, <laughs> going back and getting the Super Cherokee to pull us out, you know. But it's it's unforgiving for sure. If it had been in wintertime, that would have been a whole different story and situation that we probably wouldn't have been laughing about all day long. Right, because that those some of those creek bottoms and stuff that you know are that don't flow at all when most yeah. people are there, they end up becoming like quicksand. Absolutely, they will. Yeah, yep. We had crossed over a little stream, tiny stream, probably oh two foot wide at the most, and maybe a foot deep. And we'd crossed this snowmelt runoff stream probably seven times throughout the day. And uh, we were headed back towards uh, RMB 4x4 where we live. And the last time we crossed it, that thing was probably two foot wide and three feet deep. And it absolutely swallowed both front tires, put my winch into the mud. Like I had to dig the winch totally out of the mud to be able to use it, try it out, which, you know, didn't work because there was just sagebrush everywhere. I don't have a dead man or a, you know, like a pull pal or anything, but didn't expect to have to use it. You know, you cross that Creek so many times during the day, you're fine. You get complacent by the end of the day. Right. 
So let's uh, let's talk some more about about the uh, the book and what uh, what kind of articles that you put into it and and what it what it really is all about. So you know, give me your uh, your elevator pitch, you might say. Yeah, it's just a periodical to follow along all of us crazy flat fender guys, which I will say are a different breed of off roader. And uh, we've got adventure stories in there, tech articles that are, you know, pretty much tailored to the Willie's stuff only. And I, I try to keep, you know, like a lot of my friends that I've met out here since I've moved out, uh, they make products for these Willie's. So I try to, you know, kind of push these grassroots products and, and go from there. I've got a lot of, little bit of humor here and there. We've got RJ in the back that makes up a story with a vintage picture that ebay for sale and i'll buy it and send it to him and he just comes up with the silliest stuff and it's just uh just a good snapshot of us flatbender guys and what we love and what are some of the stories that you can tell me about some of these uh different breed of wheelers the guys that love the flat fenders i know a lot of them already but uh, yeah you know I, I would imagine you being you know one of the locals there that's into the flat fenders um, whenever they come into town, you know, you're on their, their hit list. A lot of times. And then of course it's became to where, you know, it's a little, we got little clicks nowadays and not everybody communicates with everybody all the time. So some guys will show up into town and I don't even know they're going to be here. And, uh, then we meet up, but yeah, they're, they're, I always say, you know, you got to have a love for pain and suffering. If you're going to be a flat fender driver, <laughs> that's for sure. My first Jeep was a was a forty six, and uh, but it had a two fifteen all aluminum. It's like the Buick or Pontiac motor. That Absolutely, was a screaming a, little V eight. Oh my god, that thing screamed. Those are great engines for a Flaffender for sure, and just where that's a real good uh, you know sixties seventies period swap kind of thing for sure. I think those are kind of like the the Land Rover motor. You know, they took the design too and ran with that for some of theirs. Also. Yeah, they they actually bought the the design from Rover. Bought that, and uh, that's that three point eight that they use still use. Yeah, such an awesome motor, still in use. So cool. That's a rad first Jeep for sure. It no roll cage, and I had it when we were. I bought it when I was in Cedar City, and we were out there at Three Peaks all the time. And, you know, it, it, everything on it was stock except for that engine and the, and, um, yeah, I don't even think that there was anything else besides the engine that, that wasn't, everything else was stock. And I put like 33s on it and, you know, would, would tear up the, all the, the steering and everything all the time, but dropping off with no, you know, just a windshield and a B hoop. And, uh, yep. I was doing some pretty stupid things and there's a picture that I've got somewhere that, that just shows us leaning back in the seats as it's standing on the front bumper, just hoping it doesn't go all the way over. And, uh, <laughs> it was, and I was like, I, I thought I was going to die that day. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, it still lives on that kind of stuff. And through Sean Smith and all of us <laughs> for sure. him more famously than all of us, you know, cause he just wheels all the time with no roll bar, but uh, I end up, I, my Jeeps come with a roll bar usually end up when I buy them. So I just kind of leave them in there. Except for the Go Devil Run, we don't ever, you know, do anything technical enough. I guess if you crashed in the ditch at speed, you'd be in pretty bad shape. But there's never anything like you're talking about with the standing on the nose and with the come to Jesus moment. There's none of that going on in that run. So, <laughs> Right. <laughs> I can remember coming across Eric Falar on uh, Behind the Rocks, and it's that that first climb that, that I, I call it a gatekeeper climb. And, yep. uh, he was up there with his flat fender and I pulled up in the Cherokee and I was, I got, I just couldn't get over the edge and I said, Hey, you want to spot me? And he, yeah, just come a little more driver. And it started to climb and he says, okay, now turn passenger. And it went right up. So now I know the line on that thing, but, uh, yeah. You know, there was no getting out. There's no getting out on that and trying to figure out what you're going to do unless you get it all the way back down to the bottom. 
For sure. No, you can get in a tight spot on that trail for sure in anything. Doesn't matter what size it is. Yeah. And uh, watching Ryan Miller drive down with his uh, little rally Jeep that they built for for Kaylee to do the rebel in and driving off a high dive, I was like, you're an idiot, dude. <laughs> there's, there's no way I, do, I wouldn't drive anything down that. <laughs> <laughs> right. I put on hardcore events, but I'm not a hardcore wheeler. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I just, you don't know. It just happens. That's for sure. That uh, we get those little flat fenders in these predicaments. And if you don't, there's a funny because there's a special magical formula of the size and power to weight ratio and all of that in a stock one. You put two lockers in it and they're just unstoppable small tires you know doesn't affect your gear to crawl ratios that are factory and whatnot but if you start to deviate from that you have to pretty much commit and go all the way to right yeah you got to pretty much go in between doesn't really work it's either big tires big motor big axles or you keep it stock in between it just doesn't really work that good you know i don't think that most people nowadays because you know the guys and i'm talking about the people that came into wheeling with the jk's Yep. They don't understand that the flat fenders, the suspension is is all built into the frame. I mean, right. those, those yeah. little tiny springs, you know, that you're running on, those old military, you know, wrap springs and all that kind of stuff and sprung yeah. under and everything is not what gives you your suspension travel. It's the frame twisting. Yeah, that frame twists a lot. And you don't notice it until you get all bound up and all of a sudden your clutch doesn't work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, the gas pedals all in a weird spot now. And yeah, it's, that's the big thing with it. And like I said, it's either got to be fully boxed and rigid or else it's got to be able to flex really good. Agreed. And yeah. so how do, how do people get involved in, and in if they wanted to, um, to get your book and how often does it come out? So I've, I've really not had a set schedule on uh, just basically because of how uncertain everything is around Moab and, you know, after the all the COVID problems and stuff, I didn't really want to set, hey, it's going to be every month at this time exactly we're going to have the book ready because it just doesn't work like that right now for me and some other people. So we just pretty much put them together as we can get them done. And it's if we have content or not, you know, that all kind of plays into it also so creating content a, can be a pain in the butt oh absolutely absolutely it is and I, some of my friends you know that i've that contribute i'm like you know you guys are putting out these amazing posts on social media and stuff you know tech stuff or whatever that's kind of profound and then it just gets lost in the algorithm i'm like let's just put this in paper so that you know things like when photo bucket decides they're not going to do the you know pictures for everybody anymore on the forums which was a big thing back in the pirate days oh yes <laughs> you know i'm like let's save this stuff before facebook implodes you know because that's not going to be around forever i don't really think it could be but i don't know yeah i've got everything that i have on facebook archived yeah you got to in multiple places you know yes I made some bad jokes that the Zuckerberg didn't like, and he deleted my entire account, you know, last year. So wow. I had to start over again with my new account. So that's why I don't do like those reels things and things like that. Cause it's, mm-hmm. uh, cause you do it live on there. You don't, you don't have the content anymore. No, no. And that's why I've, I'll post my Instagram and it, it does a reel that'll, you know, transfer over to Facebook that disappears, but it's always in my Instagram. So that's, that's good. I I do see that one, that app staying around a lot longer. It's not nearly as controversial with the politics and all true. that stuff. So true, but it's still more, owned by Meta. That's so. true. Yep. So then uh what is uh is it is it a hardcover or is it a magazine t- style? So it's yeah, I wanted a what they call a perfect bound book, you know, so it's got a nice thick glossy cover that's uh you know uh, laminated together with a hard, you know, edge on the spine. Right. And honestly, I wanted to have someone locally in Moab do it. 
And I, you know, talked to the local print shop and they said, no, oh, you know, we can do a spiral bound or we can do this, you know, a little less quality paper for the cover. And I looked at what they had, like a, you know, a diner's guide or like a coupon book. I'm like, you know, nobody's, they might buy it, but this isn't something that somebody's going to leave on the, you know, table for a while and be like really neat looking. So I had a, ran into a guy in Grand Junction, Colorado, two hours away, one man, you know, operation print shop. And he's like, oh yeah, I can definitely do this for you. And I really appreciate, you know, what you're doing with trying to keep print alive. So he's been a really big help this entire time and kind of taught me the process of being a publisher and stuff like that, which, you know, I had absolutely no idea what that entailed until I did a little Google, Google research on that and decided, Hey, you know, you apply for an LLC and, you know, do the legwork on finding a printer near publisher. So, right. We, that's basically what happened to us when we, when we purchased for low and started publishing it, it, uh, you know, we we took it over at issue seventeen was our first one, and it was, okay. you know, when we the guy we bought it from, the intention was to keep him on as an editor, and that wasn't going to work out. We found out right away, and yeah, because uh, he still wanted to run it the way he was running it, which obviously is why he you know he had to sell it. So it was like, sure. okay, we're gonna we're gonna make some changes, and he kind of flipped out on that. So all of a sudden, we're like, okay, we got to figure this out, and luckily we we caught we contacted a few people that we know that are in publishing and said, okay, you know, what do we need to do? And, uh, you know, we, we had a big learning curve. I should say my wife, Shelly had a, had a huge learning curve. I just make suggestions, you know, and I shoot some of the yeah. pictures and, and write a few of the articles, but she does all the hard work. And, you know, every, every two months we got to have that magazine out and yeah, that deadline, that deadline section there you know, for, for two weeks while we're putting it all together is, uh, is crazy. Absolutely. It really is too. It is. And, and without having friends to help out with the articles and understand what we're trying to do, you know, it couldn't be done. You know, the, uh, the magazine industry as it used to be is, uh, you know, it'll never go back to that. I don't think. Um, I don't think it will either. No, print. I don't. No, and sure. And uh, it's one of those things that you know, it's a it's a labor of love. The it's it's without having the friends helping out with doing the articles and stuff. There's no way that we could pay for the mm-hmm. articles to be done right now, mm-hmm. at least the way. Yeah. You know that they that the the model of the magazine industry in the past. Sure. Yeah. The yeah, money's well, just not of- there. No, it's not. It's not. We make all of our money. Bread and butter is on our uh, T-shirts, stickers, you know, mugs, and all the little swag that we sell on our website. You know, that's that's where we live on for sure. Which is definitely still not much, <laughs> right? But it's uh, it's difficult. It's uh, and so what is uh, how much are you charging for when you do put out an issue? Where well, right now they're at fifteen dollars with your postage included of course unless it's you know overseas then they have to pay the shipping costs but you know it's selling eight countries so they're going all over the place but you know eventually we're gonna have to bring the price up because literally i mean i want to say postage has went up four or five times since we've started this (laughs) what we found is it's the the paper paper yeah paper and we're yep. doing the same thing. You know, we're, we've got a heavier cover, um, heavier pages on the inside. And the cost, yep. I mean, I think the last issue we just put out, um, this issue 51, is it? there was no price increase on the paper. And it was yeah. like, wow, that's the first time. I mean, every issue for, you know, since since 2009, the end of 2019, every issue, they've raised the price of production. Absolutely. Yeah. Last year we couldn't even get the paper that we wanted in and it took forever. And at the print shop, you know, I'm the only one that uses that stuff. So (laughs) my printer, Mark, well, he'll order these, you know, boxes of paper just for me only for my next book. So we got issue, we got nine books out so far and, uh, you know, it was going to be, you know, by season, but I've gotten to where, 
I'm just going to number them now. You know, issue 10 is the one we're working on now. So excellent. Yeah. And so they can go to anybody that's interested in that could go to flatfendering.com and do that. Yeah. Yeah. As long as our pre-orders open, you know, and we or like, if we have back issues that are available and we'll have those there too for sale, but, and those are usually, you know, buy and ship kind of things, unless they do a big package order, you know, and waiting on the other books and stuff. But yeah, that's where we uh, sell everything. And social media, as much as I hate it, you know, 90% of the time, that's our best advertising route right now still. Oh, I agree. I agree. Just just today I did, we got my issue 51s showed up to uh, to the house here. So I, I broke one out and, and did a preview video. And, uh, you know, every time I do a preview video, you know, the first day, you know, we get a bunch of, uh, new subscriptions and then it tapers off and then I repost it and then we get, you know, some more subscriptions and, (laughs) you know, and then, and then you have people that fall off that go, Hey, I, I didn't sign up for this for, for an, an extra year. I just wanted one year, you know, type thing. It's like, all right, fine, you know, whatever. But, uh, yeah, you know, support. All I got to say to people out there is support these small magazines, print magazines, if you can. Um, you know, there's, there's, you know, your magazine, there's ours with Four Low, um, John Herrick's with Crawl. You know, yep. there's very few out there that aren't the big, have turned into the bigger publications, you know. Um, the Overlanding yeah. Journal and all those others, those things are are huge and, and you know, they're expensive. and they they've yep. got a good following you know the the overlanding is uh that's is, huge it's it's a huge part of the business nowadays so that's the hot uh, thing so anybody out there listening to this if you're not if you're not subscribing to print magazines you know think about it please do because there's a bunch there's a quite a few of us out there that are trying to make this keep it keep it alive so yeah people should be uh should be willing to spend that uh with us, it's twenty four dollars a year. I mean, come on, for six issues, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. No, that's good stuff, you know. And like I said, it, it's always going to be around. You know, when the internet crashes for a minute, you can still go over there and pick that up and be entertained for a, you know the evening. Where <laughs> now it's just like you have to twiddle your thumbs. You know, if the internet goes out. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Nobody knows what to do in the bathroom anymore. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, that's why I made my my issues are so small. That way, you know, they fit good on the back of a toilet tank or in somebody's ammo can in their Jeep. You know, you could take them anywhere, put them in your lunchbox. Yep, absolutely. So let's uh, let's talk about uh, a little bit about the uh, like the Go Devil Run and some of the runs you guys do. I know uh, Jackman does the uh, the vintage Jeep rallies up in Idaho. I think it is, isn't that? What yep. he calls it? Idaho. Yeah, he does the Idaho Vintage Jeep Rally, which, you know, he's kind of started doing it about the same time as the Go Double Run. And he's like, there's not going to be any rules. You know, this is cutting out everybody. He wants everybody to come and have fun, but just, you know, be vintage enough to where it's this not all flat fenders for his run. You know, you'll see, you know, full size Cherokee two doors. You'll see CJ fives and sevens will come along and commandos and all that kind of stuff. So he's, he's a little uh, less, he's got no rules. So anybody can come, you know, and it's, it's really fun. Uh, Go devil run. That's its own separate thing. And I don't, people, the purists about, it's not even really like a regular trail run, like a trail hero or something like that. You know, it's more of a reenactment of that. The people do with like the world war two stuff, you know, get dressed up in your period. Correct costumes and go out and have all your period correct camping gear and recreate these things that are being lost and forgotten. Yeah. We did a, an article, um, on one of a couple of years ago on one of the go devil runs. And, uh, it was actually done by Ryan Miller and all the photos are in black and white. It's the way it should be. Absolutely. And they look great. I mean, and that's, I think it was like the first one, so a lot of people didn't have, you know, their full costume and the Jeeps weren't exactly perfect. Mine definitely wasn't, you know, but <laughs> I tried to hide the modern mods and stuff as good as I could to where people almost, you know, couldn't recognize my Jeep. They could not believe that it transformed into a 
big tire trail crawler into a stalker that looked like it was, you know, from the 1950s. So it's a lot of fun to be able to do that and, you know, bring back. That's another section of, uh, you know, automotive history that's not really talked about or covered. It was what everybody did, you know, after the war with these surplus Jeeps. what they do? They, you know, painted them funky colors and got out and started exploring around and having fun with them. You know, it's a different kind of freedom that back then that was kind of harder to find. But the Jeep lets you get out in the backcountry. They, they created an industry. They didn't know Absolutely. it at the time. Yep. That's where anything nowadays that's off-road, Jeep or whatever, that that's all stems from those days and those guys. And, you know, a lot of them were connected. You'll see them in these old vintage pictures. It's like the, you know, I forget a guy that started Hot Rod Magazine or something or NHRA or something like that. And he was, you know, in the war putting a, you know, a V8 in his flat fender MB, you know, hot rodding around. That big, that right there is the first step into the off-road industry, you know. Correct. And and now it's amazing because, you know, with uh, with the evolution of, of Jeeps, I mean, it used to be, you know, when you were, when you were going to do upgrade your suspension, you just added more Rancho shocks. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Or some ag tires, you know, that would float better on the sand and whatnot. Yep. And, yeah, we uh, ran across, uh, there was a Life magazine article, and it was, uh, it was, what's funny is it was a trail ride that they did to promote uh, a, a paved route to Anza Brego and somewhere else, and nowadays we'll do that kind of trail ride to try and keep a trail unpaved, you know, but that's, they all got together, and this Life magazine collection of pictures were just everybody in these old you know, GPs and MBs and all command cars and all these army surplus rigs, brand new CJ two A's. And they're just cruising across the desert, looking like they're having a great time, you know? So me and Ian were talking one night and he's like, I'm thinking about doing a trail ride down here in, in, uh, in Arizona. It's like in flat fenders only. I'm like, that'd be awesome. How about if we, you know, make everybody have, you know, old camping gear and, you know, all the old clothes and stuff that they wore back then and try to make it look exactly like these pictures we've ran across. And it just took off from there. That's cool. That's cool. And so, um, the, the, I didn't ask Ian this because it was when I interviewed him, but the, the gold devil runs, is he only going to do those in Arizona or is he going to expand those to other locations? Do you know? I think the original, um, Go Devil Run that he puts on is probably always going to be in the Arizona area. I mean, there's so much to explore over there that's, you know, flat fender, you know, friendly that, you know, you see a lot of the coverage of four-wheel drive stuff down there, and it's just extreme rock crawling crazy. But there's so much other stuff that's just historic roads and towns and ghost towns that, you know, are perfect for tooling around in a flat fender all day long. Right. No, I agree totally because I've done a lot of roads down there, but you know, either in my my XJ or the uh, or in the Raptor, and uh, sure, like the Arizona Peace Trail and all all the offshoots of you know so many of the offshoots out there on on that. Um, yep. there's some Absolutely, pretty, some pretty cool epic stuff out there. Well, it really is. I want to say I want to say thank you so much for for coming on and spending some time and and making yourself available. I know you had to come into town to to get cell service and and uh, I appreciate you taking you know making that effort so that we could we could talk and and chat. And I want to make sure that everybody you know checks out Flat Fendering Aficionado. They got a you got a Facebook page. Um, you can go to flatfendering.com and you know, stay abreast on it. You know, if you're, if you're into flat fenders at all or the history, um, you know, start buying the books and, uh, supporting, you know, supporting print, please, you know, digital is great, but, uh, it, it's, it's nothing like what you can touch, you know, um, it's, uh, it's always there for you. Always good as a reference material. And, uh, 
So Travis, thank you so much. And I'll, next time I'm out in, in Moab, we're going to have to get together. Absolutely. Yeah. You know where I'll be uh, parked at too. It'll be right there at the LaSalle Junction at, uh, at Mike Nappy's campground. So. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on and spending some time. Yeah, absolutely. appreciate it. Thank you very much for the opportunity. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Well, that's another episode of Conversations with Big Rich. I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you could do us a favor and uh, leave us a review on any podcast service that you happen to be listening on, or send us an email or a text message or a Facebook message, and let me know uh, any ideas that you have, or if there's anybody that you have that you think would be a great guest, please forward the contact information to me so that we can uh, try to get them on. And always remember, live life to the fullest. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and live life with all the gusto you can. Thank you.